Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Access Netflix, Prime Video, Live TV and more with the Xfinity X1 voice remote. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit an Xfinity store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time you're listening to this podcast. My name is James Alban and you're listening to The Last Line. Hope you are well. Thank you very much for joining me. If you're new to the podcast, then please do hit subscribe and uh, leave a little rating and review. And uh, head over to youtube.com forward slash last line films and uh, hit subscribe over there as well. And um you can listen to clips of the podcast there and little bonus clips that didn't make it to the final uh, cut of the podcast. So a little bit of extra content. And if you're feeling extra generous, then you can head over to patreon.com forward slash the last line and chuck us some of your hard earned cash where you will be adequately rewarded for doing so. On this week's show, I sit down with Jay Wilgoose, Esquire of the band Public Service Broadcasting. If you haven't heard of Public Service Broadcasting, they're a band that set new music to old public information films. They work closely with institutions like the BFI to produce concept albums that tackle subjects such as the Welsh mining industry, the race of space and the Second World War. Jay was kind enough to invite me to sit in his studio in uh, January of this year where he recorded the majority of the band's first two albums Inform, Educate, Entertain and The Race for Space and we had a conversation about his music, creative process and live shows but we also managed to have time to talk about his favourite football team and his thoughts on being interviewed. But first... I asked him about Brixton Academy in London, which according to Jay on the making of documentary for his latest album, Every Valley, was a dream venue to play. I think it's such a marker for so many bands, you know, kind of working their way up. And if if you're lucky enough to kind of, you know, get one foot through the door, I think it, it kind of only really feels like you've kind of forced your way into the room to sort of torture the metaphor a bit if if you get to Brixton and if you know if you're lucky enough to sell it out I think that's when you feel like you are you are you're kind of you've arrived and arrived with a certain degree of kind of um solidity slash undeniability that means that you don't have to kind of keep panicking and worrying that it's all going to die tomorrow you know it might die in like three or four years but I think if you got to that level it's not going to die off that suddenly so it's kind of um it's kind of, I suppose, uh, uh, it's something to aim for for all bands, but especially, I think, if you're, if you're like me, if you grew up in South London, if you spent, you know, your formative years, uh, you know, squeezing your way down the side of Brixton, trying to get close to the front for various gigs. I mean, I've seen, like, so many, so many good gigs there. I think the first one might even have been the Manics back in about 96, after everything must go, and, 
yeah, I can't even name all the, all the amazing gigs I've seen there, and, and it just it just felt like such a massive, you know, not achievement, but a massive kind of yardstick, I suppose, to to have got there. Um, and I think I think a lot of bands feel that way. I remember hearing Guy Garvey talking about selling out Brixton as you know that's the that's the aim really. That's that's when you know you've kind of made it to a reasonably secure level in terms yeah. of a very very insecure industry, I suppose. The sounds, I mean, I'm not like a sound expert, but like the sound at Brixton is just, you get a really good sound there. I think I've it depends, really yeah. Disappointed I mean, there. If you're ever lucky enough to go into Brixton when there's nothing in there, nobody else there, the first thing that, that our sound man said to me when, when I got there about, it must have been about noon on the day, and um, he just said, right, stand there, and he kind of positioned me just behind the first barrier, I think, because Brixton's got these kind of, metal barriers sort of a third of the way up and two thirds of the way up the floor um and he just positioned me there he said right right now just just clap once and um you know i was expecting to maybe hear like a little flutter off the walls or something so you know sometimes you get these standing waves and you hear like a little weird effect but basically because it's kind of a dome-shaped ceiling at that point um it just sounded like the weirdest longest tape delay you'd you'd ever heard (laughs) it just kind of went on it went on for a good 10-15 seconds and I guess it's partly because the floor was, you know, empty as well, so you don't have all those bodies absorbing the energy of the, the sound. But it was a really extraordinary sound. If you're ever lucky enough to be in there on your own, I, I recommend it. But talking about playing Brixton, turning up there, you know, I did, I kind of, I said it on the, the very silly DVD commentary that we did for the, for the Brixton album, but um, I was turning the corner, you know, you come out of Brixton Tube, you turn right, you start walking towards Brixton Academy, you turn left on that corner and that's when you see it and you see mm. the name up in lights or the name about to be up in lights. And um, just remember thinking like, you know, this is it, this is the moment, turning that corner and then looking up and they'd bloody spell the name wrong. So It wasn't like <laughs> pubic service broadcasting. No, they'd, done, they'd left the, the E off service, so it was oh, really? cervic broadcasting. There was a bloke up a ladder still doing it. So I had to shout up at him and go like, mate, you've, you've left an E off there. And he didn't even take my word for it. He kind of, he came down the ladder, looked at the poster on the sort of, you know, on the yeah, pillar yeah. next to it. And it was like, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, I've left the E off. I was yeah. like, you're all right, yeah, mate. Whatever. Yeah, you have. <laughs> yeah, please put it up there. <laughs> so if you look at photos of that night, you can see it's ever so slightly squished because he's obviously not left the room he needed to for, for all those letters. But there you go. It's like the same, the first time I ever went into HMV and thought, I'll, um, you know, it was when the war room, we finally got some sort of distribution for the war room, so it was going into shops properly rather than me just sort of posting out of my living room and um, went in there. I was like, this is the moment. I'm going to flip through the racks and it's going to be there. And I think they'd got us listed as public service broadcast on the little rack thing. And I was like, oh, God, it's never going to happen, is it? <laughs> that one sort of valedictory moment of like, yes, you can play the hallelujah music. It's always like, oh, come on. Yeah, there you go. So that's what you were doing, but you were posting out before it got into shops and stuff. You, I guess, you had loads of copies, yeah. and you were just yeah. I mean, there was there was the first EP, which was a ten inch, which was called EP One, which was mostly demos and stuff. And it was back when uh, there were no live drums in it. It was all kind of programmed drums, really. Um, which I've tried to find, by the way, and I can't find anywhere. Yeah, I found six copies about a year ago, and I've given one away for for our charity efforts and uh, right. I think I've got five left so yeah they they seem to go for quite a lot on eBay which is which is ironic given that I remember I think there was this pressing plant in Norwich or somewhere like that that, mm. that pressed them up and at the time he was like 
are you sure you don't want 500 of these because it only costs about 200 quid extra? And I was like, in all honesty, I'm never even going to shift these 250. So, you know, they're just going to end up sitting in the loft somewhere. So let's <laughs> let's just stick with 250, please. And um, yeah, um, should have thought bigger, but I'd had lots of experience of many, many demo CDs and, and uh, records set around in various houses for, for years. So I thought it was best to be uh, prudent there. Yeah, EP1, you know, I was trying to flog that at gigs for a while and it, it went very, very slowly. And it was only really when the War Room came out that people started kind of ordering that as well. And I finally got rid of the last few right. copies of it. But the War Room, yeah, it just started. It was on Bandcamp and it was, um, you know, you order it. I get an email saying you've ordered it. I've got to work out how to bloody yeah. post out 250 records. And it turned into like a little cottage industry, really. And I had my mum helping me like tape them up and... I only, it was fortunate because I only lived around the corner from the post office at that point, so I was just like carrying them around in two big bags and dumping them all in there and saying, can I have all these second class, please? <laughs> but, um, yeah. And then finally we got some distribution and, and um, a few shops got in touch as well, like Resident got in touch and Rough Trade West got in touch, so I managed to palm off a few boxes to them and I was just like so happy to drop them off at their doorstep and go, here you go, thanks so much. Um, but... It was, you know, it's, it's great to have had that experience of doing it all yourself and, you know, knowing what it's like to actually sell some records for once. Um, but it was quite time consuming, that full time job and, you know, um, trying to work on new music as well and get the album out relatively soon after the war. And was, it was a busy, busy time. Spitfire was the track that sort of took off. Yeah, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it was really. Um, you know, and I, I remember I wrote the War Room in sequence and had just started working with the management company that we've been working to, you know, up until now. And um, he was kind of pushing me, saying, like, you know, we need something that's going to get on radio, try and write a single. So I wrote, I wrote If War Should Come and I sent that through and I was like, this isn't a single, don't worry about that. This is just kind of setting the scene. And then I kind of thought London can take it, that'll be a single. So I wrote that and demoed it to a reasonable standard and sent it through and was like, here you go, that's a single. And they were kind of like, nah, it, it's not really, you know, it's, it's good, but I, I it's going to struggle to get on the radio. So I was like, oh, jeez, what, you know. So then I had the riff for Spitfire, like the basic verse riff, and just, you know, I just chipped away at it for weeks. I remember hitting a real brick wall with it and just having a basic kind of verse groove but not knowing where it was going to go and um, finally kind of getting this. It was it was the kind of the percussive keyboard bit that comes in that, that sort of changed the song for me and then the riff sort of came out of nowhere and then... Yeah, I remember playing that to my wife and she said, not sarcastically for once, she said it sounds like a hit record. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was a nice feeling to have that. Even then, though, I was still walking around listening to it in different places and just trying to feel like, is this actually any good or is it, you know, do I just think it's good because I've heard it so much and obviously I wrote it, so I like it. I actually heard your, I think it was London Can Take It. It was like playing on Newsnight, I think. Was that? It ends up on all sorts of stuff. Like It's ended up on Made in Chelsea, which been quite interesting to see but there you go do you get lots of made in chelsea fans just like running i don't think the venn diagram <laughs> made in chelsea fans and fans of us i don't think there's a big overlap in the middle of that but but again it's nice of them to to play it i think we got asked to do a gig for them once actually they were doing like a artists featured on the show oh really but it was at stamford bridge in the chelsea hotel which kind of really put me off because i'm not a fan of chelsea so. who are you a fan wimbledon Ah, so yeah, it runs deep. 
<laughs> and uh, and irrational as well, as you can tell. But, yeah, I actually I watched a documentary about. It. I didn't. I hadn't realised the sort of history of Wimbledon. You know, with the I remember the MK Dons thing mm-hmm. because my some of my family live in Milton Keynes, so I remember that, and I never quite understood the Dons, but now I understand where that's from now. But I thought, yeah, yeah I mean, I'm sure you don't want to turn your podcast into a political machinations of terrible footballing decisions but yeah that was a terrible football decision so let's just uh, <laughs> let's just probably leave they're, it there they're coming back there they've come back and well yeah. they haven't come back we we well, they started, started again it, from yeah. scratch and showed them how you do it if you want a football team you play, do it yourself and you support it and you make sure it's kind of got some grassroots momentum behind it you don't just you know sort of like some sort of vampire squid sort of leech off some established team and try and pervert the rules of the football league which is what they did to kind of you know manipulate them and maneuver them into your city Uh, sorry not city it's a town yeah Um, it's a town you know i don't have anything against (laughs) the place as such but it's hard not to resent it slightly yeah it's it's irrational it's stupid but you know i think we would have a hard time doing a gig there i don't think we would we haven't (laughs) <laughs> it's weird though because American teams in American sports like it happens quite a lot like mm. they just move a team to a different city like Las Vegas have suddenly got an ice hockey team and that seems a completely inappropriate place to well, have I, an ice hockey team everything about that place seems, <laughs> seems unreal doesn't it I suppose it's not it's no less real than them having a mock-up of the Eiffel Tower there but yeah, it's. Um, I guess it comes down to what you see sport as. If you see it as a kind of local community thing and a reflection of the people and, and you know people's kind of recreational habits and hobbies and you know doing good in the community and becoming embedded in the community, or if you just see it as you know where can we best cite this money making mm. sport franchise. Um, and the terrible thing about the Wimbledon decision was that it seemed to be like it was opening the door to go down the route of. You know, there's no reason. There's no reason Manchester United couldn't suddenly decide that the best place for their stadium is just off the M6 toll road or something, or you know, right next to the Channel Tunnel to pick up continental traffic, or next to Heathrow. I mean, there's no reason they couldn't cite the Milton Keynes decision as part of that because it was a time when the Football League broke its own rules. You know, that your team has to come from within 10 miles of the conurbation it takes its name from. So um, it seemed to be setting. A, a dangerous precedent and in the process stealing our football club and its league place but yeah but yeah you know i don't want to bang on about it but, <laughs> but yeah it's you know and good things came out of it because we own our own club now you know it's fan, yeah. fan owned every fan pays 25 quid has a vote has a share and it's part of the community and it's doing doing a great job and you know we'll get our own stadium back in merton soon which that's all we ever really wanted i think took a relatively cavalier approach in the early days of just being like I oh, just nobody's ever going to listen to this because I, d- I thought nobody was ever going to listen to it and that's you know I made a couple of songs without even getting in touch with the BFI and then it was only really when I started thinking I'm taking this more seriously than I was I should really speak to them about it and see if it's remotely feasible is there anything like they will say sort of don't use it like this or you know 
They've never said that yet. I mean, maybe they would, but they, they just license it to us and they never ask to see it or hear it before it's released. So I think they trust us really not to be too crass or tasteless with their material. Right. I think they trust us to kind of, you know, do it in the right way. Um, which was, especially in the early days, you know, that was a big amount of trust for them to place in us. So, um, you know, I don't know why they did it. <laughs> I really have no idea, but but they did. There was, there was a lovely woman who used to work there called Sarah Wilde, and she, you know, she answered the phone when I phoned up asking about Protect and Survive, which was a film I wanted to use, and then, you know, I sent her another email, and she just said, yeah, we've had a chat here, and yeah, fine. <laughs> and that was it, you know, which... That's the kind of flexibility you don't get inside a lot of the bigger archives. They just come back with a, this is our rate sheet, and you know, it's something eye-watering like 50 quid a second or something like that. And yeah. yeah. It's just not feasible. Do you make the track first and then go, hey, guys, we've made this song using these things. Can we use it? Um, I think it's, it's like an ongoing process in, in both directions, really. It's kind of, um, I never want to get too far ahead with the music and not know where it's going in terms of the archive. Like, I'll reach... I can have a certain idea, like I can write the bones of, a, of the song, like, you know, they gave me a lamp and be like, I want this to be about the women's group, I want it to have this particular feeling, I want it to have this kind of atmosphere. But then you don't want to get to the point where, you know, you've developed it so far and then you just can't find the archive. So at a certain point, my kind of panic levels will reach a certain level and mm. I'll start kind of like simultaneously casting about for the actual archives that I'm going to use if I don't already know it because you know there's, there is a certain amount of research that goes on beforehand anyway and yeah with a song like Progress I knew I knew which archive I wanted to use for that all along really so that was less um, less worrying in terms of putting the album together but it's hard to kind of unravel it really and, and say at what stage things happen the speech samples don't normally actually physically go on even if I know what they're going to be until relatively late they don't normally mm -hmm. go on. That's um, interesting. Because I assu I sort of assumed that you would, that they'd be in there quite early and they I would affect the track in some way, but I guess you... For for Go, they, they were definitely in early because I wanted to make sure it worked sort of in terms of the rhythm. For um, the other side, they were in early because, uh, again, I wanted to make sure the narrative worked. But, um, you know, for Gagarin, the whole song was written and done and finished. And then it was like, God, where am I going to squeeze all these bits in? You know, and then you start hitting ideas of using like Gagarin, Yuri, Alexeyevich, you know, yeah. trying to use the rhythm of that, which isn't how he said it at all. It's kind of time stretching various syllables and trying to make it land on the beat and all stuff like that. But maybe it'd be easier if they were in there from earlier on. But sometimes I just want to let the music kind of develop on its own and, you know, keep it all a bit separate. I've got a good idea of what the quotes are and what I'm going to use where, but I don't want to kind of put them on there until. I've got a better idea about what the music's doing, I suppose. Right. Interesting. The night mail, mm. is, that, is that how he says it? You know, the... The original's a bit slower. So again, yeah, that was time stretching time each, each line and in some cases syllables to try and make it match our tempo. Um, but yeah, it was, it's delivered like that. Yeah. Um, and then you've got, uh, I think it's Britain. I think it's Britain's music underneath it, which kind of... I had to go through and kind of silence or cut down or, you know, yeah. obscure somehow, which is why the end of that song is so busy, I think. It's because it's, it's trying to just get let the speech get through and, and not have any of the original music come through. So Every Valley, 
if I'm honest, when it when it first sort of came out and it was like, oh, it's about wealth mining, mm. I was a bit like, oh, because I was like, space, that's kind of cool. And, and then I was like, oh, wealth mining. I was like, oh. Mm. Right. But then obviously really liked the album when it came out and without sounding ignorant of what happened it gave me a better understanding of that whole event well that's good that's that's a nice byproduct of it i guess yeah but i was just wondering why you went from space to welsh mining and and did you worry about whether people would be like oh that's weird or well i wanted them to think it was weird you know that's that's the reaction i wanted to have i wanted people to be like hmm you know oh Okay, yeah. you know, I didn't want it to be something obvious like, oh, now they're doing cars, now they're doing boats, now they're doing, you know, it'd just be boring if you just kind of carried on on this procession of predictable targets. But um, sorry, you might be able to hear my dog huffing and snoring in the background, but she's been relatively quiet. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't want it to be to carry on that predictable train, really. You know, you see, we get a lot of suggestions from fans for, oh, do one about this, do one about that, and. You know, we did the war room and people were like, oh, now do one about the German stuff, do one about the Messerschmitt, you know. Like, no, kind of, we've done that, we're on to the next thing now. And then, then you do the space race and people are like, oh, do one about, you know, the, the comet lander on Philae and, and do one about New Horizons and Pluto and do one about Tim Peake and space. You're like, no, I'm not sure you get this. Like, we've, <laughs> we've, done, about Tim Peake. <laughs> we've done an album about space, now we're on to the next thing. Like, we're not we're not just going to kind of like find a thing that works and just stick with it because what is the point like what would the point be you might sell more records and you might make money but what's the point of that that's just no interest i mean you know i want to be able to keep doing this for a living but it's got to be interesting it's got to be something that's stimulating it's got to be something that is unpredictable and um and in some ways you know just doesn't make sense (laughs) you know that's always kind of like a key part of it really like why it doesn't matter you know the the answer like why is is in the record you you, you know that's kind yeah. of like it's the question i think we get asked more than anything else it's like why do you make an album about space why do you make an album about world war Two? why do you make an album about the welsh face like well you know the why it always seems to be what people want to know but it's also i think the least interesting thing the least interesting aspect to kind of talk about particularly because if if you kind of succeeded with what you were trying to do in the first place, it should be obvious from listening to it. It should be obvious from what's communicated by the thing that you made, yeah. why you did it, you know. You can't chase where you think your audience want you to be because then you, you're basically just irrelevant. Like, you need to lead people where you want them to go. And, you know, you need to have that kind of creative vision for what you're doing that, that says, like, don't you worry about that, you know. It's like when the first album was released, so many people were like, oh, it's... um. Yeah, it's all right, this, you know, they're all right, but where are they going to go next? Like, you know, this is only going to last an album. Where, how are they going to get more material? It's like, don't you worry about that. It's yeah. not your job to worry about that. I'm the one making it. It's my job to worry about that, and I'm not worried about it. I'm going to do it. Don't worry about it. Like, I don't understand how somebody reviewing something starts to worry on behalf of the person creating it what they do next. Like, that's not, that's not the purpose of a review for me. It's like, review yeah. the thing in front it's of me. Is the album then, good? Yeah. And like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think the good thing is now I I have literally no idea what the next thing will be. I think because you've thrown that curveball in of Welsh mining, I don't I don't know how people could necessarily speculate now 
what you're going to do next because yeah great well in that case that's, you, you know you're that's, that's, throwing that yeah. curveball in so that's it's another like, well, they're not going to do the same yeah. thing yeah and it, it, but it also just shows like i think i think even without being ungenerous to the people we spoke to and the people we worked with to make the record i think most people involved with mining would agree that it's not the easiest subject to sell in terms of being exciting you know i mm-hmm. think Museums are always trying to make, find ways of making it more engaging, get people on board. And museums like Big Pit and uh, you know National Coal Mining Museum up in up in Wakefield, you know, they do a great job of that. But you know, they're always kind of trying to bring people in in sort of new and interesting ways. And I think coal mining, you know, on the surface of things, which is ironic, I suppose, but on the surface of things, it's it's not the most obviously appealing subject for an album. Um, but again, there's a kind of perversity to it and a kind of ambition to it that says like, well, if you can if you can make an album about a subject like that and if you can, you know, actually make it accessible and make it relatively popular, then you can demonstrate to people that, you know, there really isn't any limit on where you can go with a project like this because it's really it's only really bound by your imagination. It wasn't even particularly tightly bound to archive in the end of this album because we ended up you know even swerving away from the concept yeah. of using archive entirely so i think it's really opened the doors to you know the next two or three albums or things that we work on and and hopefully just kind of just sort of stop people worrying on about yeah. a bit you know it's yeah because that was surprising as well is that actually there's actually quite a lot of singing in it yeah but again that's that's a good thing i think and um I think it also, you know, it's 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 that slight element of pragmatism that comes from making records the way we do that, that some of the material is just harder to find in archive form from recent years that's accessible and that um, that would do the job as well as something else like say singing, you know. Yeah. Um, how do you get an effect with as much kind of emotional and and sort of heavyweight effect as, as getting someone like you know James Dean Bradfield to sing a poem from the 30s which has resonances through the 80s and even all the way up to now you know there's there is no piece of archive that does that job um in in that way so it's kind of it's about telling the story the best way and, and using the material that you have in in the best way that you can really and I think that was another part of of doing the album in that way was to kind of to show that it's not limited to working with material in one particular way it's kind of like the doors are they're all open really yeah because it is um it is like a very sort of emotional record i think particularly i I really like the track where you have um the welsh singing Mm. um like the welsh language singing and i think you're singing on it aren't you yeah yeah my sort of natural assumption was that he won't be able to sing and that's part of the reason why he does the archive thing. I can't because sing, that's what yeah. I yeah. would do until I got a girlfriend that could sing. I would like <laughs> put samples in because I can't sing. Mm. Um, but you can sing. I can't. I can't sing to the point where it's ever going to be uh, an attraction. It's, it's, it's never going to be like the hook that you need to bring people into a band. You know, nobody's ever going to hear me singing something and be like, "Wow, what a voice." got to get that record that's never ever going to happen i think it served a particular purpose on that particular song on this particular album partly again due to pragmatism and necessity because the person i had in mind for it um who was kind of up for it in theory early doors but then stopped answering the phone so it's like you either step up and do it yourself and just kind of deal with that or 
the song doesn't get on the album. You don't get Lisa on the album and her amazing voice. You don't get this song that you're really fond of on the album as well. Um, so, you know, it was, it was that sort of more pragmatic element that, that came to it, really. And, and just being trying to be relatively fearless, I suppose, about it all and not worrying about, like, what people are going to make of you singing in Welsh on an album. Right? <laughs> so, Did you find that hard then when, like, you were mixing and stuff? Because if, if I've ever tried to sing on stuff, I can't, I just can't. Like um, carrying on with anything. I mean, she's off. definitely way higher in the mix than me in the last chorus, but that says it should be anyway because she does have one of those voices that you hear and you say, "Wow, yeah. what, what a voice!" Um, you know, and, and that's such a rare gift. And the people who do have that are so fortunate. Um, I don't think they know how fortunate they are, but uh, it's not something I have. So it, it's not kind of, you know, I still maintain I can't, I can't sing to the sort of standard that you would need to if you were going to rely on it to actually try and get people interested in your band or, or sell any records. Um, it just wouldn't happen. Like, it's, it's only happened here because it kind of had to or the song wouldn't make it on there. So, yeah. So before you were playing with like archive footage and stuff, your demos before, were they, were, did you ever sing on, was it always Yeah, no, you know, I tried a bit, you know, and in school bands and stuff, I'd done a bit and done a bit of backing vocals and guitar and stuff and tried various electronic bits and bobs and you know the, the common thread running through it all was like this is not good enough um this is not going to work so um yeah just kind of it was really only finding another vehicle for kind of making your music work which luckily enough for me was there in the form of archive clips um that allowed me to kind of take this thing and run with it and develop it to the point where you can start introducing some of the, the yeah. weaker elements that were there all along and uh, and um, you know get them in there I, I can't foresee a situation in which I would like to sing again on another song that we do so I would like to think it's a one-off but you know who knows you can't you can't kind of close down any potential creative avenues so um, I didn't enjoy it though no 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 but I enjoy the song I think it's a good song um, Oh, it's a lovely it, song. It means, it means a lot to me personally. Um, excuse the squeaky studio chair. It means a lot to me personally. Uh, and, you know, the person I was singing about, which is my wife, but also in terms of the context of the album and, her, and the idea of having all these kind of forces ranged against you and, um, you know, maybe the machinery of the state and all these kind of massive crushing forces weighing down on you that you have no control over. And then trying to take some kind of solace from the strength of your relationship or your community, that, you know, that meant a lot as well. I watched your TED talk. Oh, right. <laughs> not mm. happy with your TED talk. I've not watched it. Um, you know, I've watched it back. No, it's quite good. Yeah, uh, you know, my wife's always on at me like, you should listen back to stuff. You should watch stuff. But the only thing I've ever watched, the only thing I've watched recently was did a sort of interview. I think it was in here actually, in this room, uh, for the concept album documentary that BBC Four were making. And um, we were, like, as a family, we were all together when it was on, so my wife was like, stick it on, it's on, it's on. So we kind of watched it, and I was just sat there. You know, I thought I was kind of gesticulating wildly and, you know, 
really being emotive and passionate in this interview and then you watch it it's just like this guy looks like he wants to kill himself basically um and then it goes to rick wakeman who's kind of you know much more professional in his way and some other guy from some other band and he's like ebullient and effusive and and then it's back to me going like yeah so he made an album about space and it's just like i don't really think it's helping me watching this like you know now i know i need to be a bit more energetic when i'm on camera but um yeah, it's not going to be a strong point. Do you like in- do you like interviews, or do you generally find them a bit of a task? Uh, it depends who is doing the interview, and it depends what they want to talk about and how much they know about you. Like if you're if you're doing kind of one of the really soul destroying days of sitting in a studio somewhere while they connect you with about twenty local radio stations around the country, and you know they they range in terms of quality from people who have at least kind of read a bit about you or know a bit about you or heard something and can talk to you about it to people who clearly you know they get the band name wrong they get everything wrong about it and you you know you remain good humored about it and don't get uppity but it, it does get a bit you know when you're being kind of asked fairly boring questions that you've been asked sort of hundreds of times before it does get a bit trying but then you get you know you get good ones where you get a good rapport with the person you're speaking to and you know you get on well with them and it's kind of more like a conversation i suppose than than just you sort of blathering on about the record you wanted to make and, you know, how you used this microphone on that guitar amp and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, there's, there's a few interviews of you, because obviously I've just been down the YouTube rabbit hole and there's like a few interviews of you where you're just, you look like, you're just like, all right, whatever. <laughs> like, I think that's my face as well. It's, I just have, I have an element of that. But, and, and, you know, a lot of these things are interviews on tour or they're done when you haven't had much sleep and your yeah. your tolerance for, for these things is, is quite low. Like, I can't think of anything worse than those junkets that they send film people on and they just go and sit in a hotel room and people come in like a, you know, like a sort of sausage factory of just people coming and going, coming and going, same question, same question. Um, it must be really, really dull. And, and just, I don't think, unless you've had to do it, you understand that it is quite hard work because you can't if you're a professional at that level certainly you can't afford to be off you can't afford to be like you know yeah. you need to be up all the time and having that kind of energy level when you really don't feel anything like that is you know i i can't do it so there's a great one where you're i won't i won't like say who it is but um there's a great one where you're at the roundhouse just before which must have been the gig that i saw because I saw you at the roundhouse. I think I know which one you're talking about. And um, your drummer mm-hmm. starts starts answering all the questions, yeah, as if he's like done all the music and stuff. And I'm not sure she no cottons onto the fact that he's just taking her for a ride for a bit. No, I I no, I don't think that was apparent without <laughs> wishing to do her a disservice. Um, it, yeah, you get you get some odd ones and. I think we've kind of stopped doing interviews together, me and him, uh, unless they're kind of, you know, part of a session or something, because people don't, you know, they don't really want to, they just want to talk about the same things, really, which is like where the archive comes from, why, why are you doing this, you know, why, yeah. why, um, how did you write this, why did you work with that, and, you know, because it's kind of like such a control freak organisation sort of on my part, you know, it's it's all stuff that just comes back to me anyway. So you know, Paul Riggles just ends up sitting there not saying anything, or you takes know, over. or taking yeah. over and just just making a mockery of the whole thing, which which I don't blame him for necessarily. But um, 
I'm not sure it's the best way to do these things. It's quite so. funny. Yeah, you know, it's, it it's funny fun. to be in it, but I do often wonder looking back on some of them, especially the early ones, like, were we being obnoxious there? <laughs> I don't know. I think if you're met with somebody who is inept, <laughs> I think you're, <laughs> you're allowed to do You're allowed to take a certain... Uh, Tone. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of trying to gently rib them without them realising it's quite that is quite a, f a fine line to try and straddle. So back to your TED talk. Oh yeah, right. Um, wow, which, what, what a ten minutes that was. <laughs> <laughs> um, you talked about it's, it's all about um, if anyone hasn't watched it, um, they should. <laughs> Who are these people? They should go and and watch it because you talk about how live music should come with an element of risk, and you use the crime and punishment example. Yeah, my wife was not keen on me putting that in. I was like, but you trust, you've got this audience. That's the kind of thing you need to throw in to it's, be like... It's a TED audience. Intellectual, you know? I'm trying to prove that I'm not an idiot. <laughs> but I found it really interesting because I sort of was like, yeah, you're right. It should, it should be risky and it shouldn't be all on a backing track. But then there was also part of me that was like, but I, if I went to see you and you did have stuff on a backing track, I wouldn't be like, oh... Well, we do, you know, I, you I do, hope I yeah. make that clear that, you know, we do, but we also go to great pains and efforts to make sure that as much that isn't, that much, as much that doesn't need to be on backing track isn't. So, you know, there's all kinds of instrument juggling or layering of things or clever technological things going on behind the scenes. But yeah, no, you know, yeah, I, I didn't let you finish that thought though. If if we did, you wouldn't be up in arms. Is that, was that what you were saying? Well, or? yeah, because like, I, I, I like your music. And I, I, I would still enjoy listening to it in a live setting. Mm. But then again, you know, maybe, maybe I, I don't know, maybe I would because I, the sort of the, the thing that was sort of when I went to see you at the Roundhouse, the sort of the amazing thing was like, look how he's sort of, he's picking up his guitar and now he's putting it down, he's doing a keyboard and now he's doing this and this. So maybe it would be, but I, I feel like you talk about how your loop pedal system doesn't like it allow for error and no it doesn't it still doesn't actually really, really <laughs> i to, feel like you could keep me you could remove some of that possibility and it would still be yeah no there's like there a, are a couple of things if there's a couple of like song reliant midi loops where if i do totally muck it up i can press like the emergency bail me out here type button but it's still obvious that something has gone wrong so yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah, no, I, you know, I guess it's, it's not having that safety net. It kind of keeps you on your toes a bit more, maybe. And, and you know, we're not going to die up there, I hope. <laughs> Certainly hope not. Um, so it's not like it's kind of... Uh, the odds aren't that severe. Um, I take, you know, I, I kind of try and... In terms of the technological integrity of the show and it staying running, even if things go badly wrong, you know, I take that very seriously. And there's a, as many fail-safes as we can possibly have reasonably on the kind of budget that we're on to make sure that you know uh if the computer goes down there's another one doing the exact same thing that is running exactly the same time that can take over so you know there is um th there there's a lot of kind of stuff that i don't want to go wrong that i'm very controlling over like this right. bit can't go wrong like you know nobody benefits if the song just explodes in the middle and stops like that's not fun for anyone but, you know, if, if somebody gets a riff wrong or plays a bit wrong or does something, you know, out of time, that's the sort of stuff that, you know, you need to leave the kind of the wiggle room for, I suppose. And it also gives you a bit of room to improvise and change things every night. And, you know, 
just the other night, I can't even remember where it was, I think it might have been Belfast, we did a gig and, you know, we came back out for Gagarin after going off briefly and um, just started playing the intro and I just started mucking around really. I didn't even play the main riff, I was just kind of noodling about on, you know, sort of much more basic riff and just looking over at Rigglesworth trying to see if I'd freaked him out and, uh, <laughs> you know, he's looking at me going like, what, what? And he had, you know, he was having to count because... I'd, I'd kind of lost the melody, so he wasn't being, he wasn't able to kind of judge off that. And it's probably slightly irresponsible in a way, but at the same time, having that kind of, you know, keeping people on their toes a bit and just being able to muck around with it a bit in a good and musical way is is a very important part of playing live, I think. Yeah. I mean, I've done it a few times and hit entirely the wrong note and just laughed, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just wondered when I'm watching it, I was like, is like I like the principle, but is the principle like making a cross for his own back, like in a... Yeah. yeah, but yeah, it would be good if we had a systems tech and I could stop worrying about certain aspects of the show not working or falling over, I suppose. But uh, we don't at the moment, so it's, it's still I'm still casting worried glances to my left occasionally to make sure both computers are still running and both synchronised. Um, I'm guessing like really early on, you wouldn't have had those fail safes. So like, was, there, no. was there any t- was there a time where like it did just all. Yeah, there was there was one particularly bad one in Bologna in 2014, I think, where uh, the second to last song of the show. So we'd done most of the show. I don't think anyone felt, you know, like they'd been shortchanged. Hopefully, but um, we were doing Roy Jibiv and uh, the sound card just decided to just squeal, high pitched digital squeal. So it was like, right, we're gonna have to stop that. Um, Moved on to Everest, which is the last one, kind of rebooted a few things, fiddled around a bit, played my little technical difficulties announcement. Um, and then it happened again when we went to the first chorus of Everest and I remember looking at Riggles and just he was just like, that's it, you know, we can't, we can't try that again like it's going to happen again, we should just leave. So we just sort of, we had to walk through the crowd as well to get off the stage, so we were just yeah. like, oh, really sorry. And, you know, everyone was really nice, and they sort of patting us on the back, going like, don't worry about it, it's fine. And we're like, it was just the worst feeling, sat back in the dressing room, like, head in hands, like, how, why did that happen? I worked out why, it's because I thought I was being economical and turning off the ADAT optical out business, but actually you need to keep that on, or sometimes this happens, apparently. So there you go, that's why it happened. But that led to the original kind of B system, which was like a... A kind of a series of backing tracks running sim- simultaneously so that if the main thing if the main computer did crash you could go to the backing tracks for one song while you rebooted the um the computer but now it's a true a b rig so if one of them does go down which hopefully touch wood or touch mdf it won't um the other one should be able to just take its place without any noticeable uh kind of skipping i suppose happened in guadalajara we did a gig there recently just Start playing People Always Need Coal, it's like... <laughs> just start slowing down and... So we started, we restarted the song and it happened again. And that was when I pressed like my emergency buttons to flip over to the second one and thank God the second one was fine. Um, so we did the whole gig off the second one. Uh, but it's normally power issues. Right. It's normally something funny about the power and the voltage, or I don't, I don't know what it is, but um, I'm pretty sure that's what it was there. I, and God knows what happened to the first one, not the second, but I'm very grateful that the second one was fine, otherwise we would have had a very short gig in Guadalajara. Sounds like a lot of things to worry about, like when you're when you're playing yeah. live. Yeah. Like, can you 
is it, is it difficult to enjoy it or is that part of the fun is jostling I think it, yeah things. there's a little bit of you know there's a satisfaction to like yeah I just did that like, yeah so. there's, there's a little bit of um, you know that sort of the thrill of being slightly on the edge but without being irresponsible because you know people are paying you know good money to come and see us and you don't want to be like ha 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 and being so cavalier with the risk that you end up sabotaging the show just to kind of keep yourself excited you know playing music on a stage full stop is is enough to keep you excited but I guess you do get a little bit extra from you know having to be across so many things on stage um yeah but I, I you know I can I can relax on stage and I do quite often but obviously if something's going wrong and I don't really know what it is or why it's happening that's when I can become a bit distracted and, and it's because the whole set is done like anything that you do sort of based on practice so much of it is muscle memory if you kind of if you miss out one step in the chain then you're just you're you yeah. know you're up a proverbial creek because you just you don't know how to get back on because it's normally like one thing after the other after the other after the other and if you're out of the chain you're like well what's the next thing you don't know you know i can sit here and not be able to play the keyboard melody out of the second verse of spitfire even though i played it you know played it 500 times probably more than that um but if I don't go to it from the guitar in this certain position, then I, I don't know where my hand goes. And I'm like, where right. am I again? You know, it's all yeah, unthinking, I suppose. Um, but when you can get to that kind of like, that level of autopilot where you're not thinking about what you're doing and you can just enjoy it, that's really where you want to be, I think, when you're performing. I remember Tommy York said something similar about, it sounds bad because he's talking about autopilot, but he doesn't mean autopilot like not engaging with what's going on. It just means your brain is free to concentrate on the experience of playing rather than the sort of the mechanics of playing, which, sure. which yeah, that's, that's kind of what you're after, I guess. Yeah. Well, I guess as well, you don't have to, if, if, if you are stressed, you don't have to talk to the audience because you use the... Yeah, although I have started stuff. talking a bit more, and, and I think it was, it was kind of, it was about time, A, because um, I'd run out of inverted commas jokes on uh, on the sample you know i can't keep saying just the same few things everywhere we go it starts to become a bit tired um and just because the subject matter of the new album and the fact you know it's sung on it and you know it's you start to break down all sorts of walls that you'd previously put up there yourself before it just kind of felt like this is the right time to start saying hello to people <laughs> and, yeah. and also again you know brixton brixton was the first time i'd ever said hello you know we kind of brought out the mic before the before the sort of first encore and out I popped and said like hello everybody and you know if we got to Brixton I always said I'd say hello and that was it and once that's kind of done you're a bit freer to kind of you know do as you see fit yeah it is an extra layer of responsibility though like and you know when you're when we're in America and we don't really have many crew with us and I'm having to hop about between guitars change tunings throughout the set because there's hundreds of different well not hundreds but tens of different tunings and keep across all the tech, you know, be systems taking it while and playing it, and then be trying to think of relatively witty things to say in between songs, you know, it really is, it is a lot to be concentrating on. And I didn't enjoy those first few shows in America because I was still struggling with the new material and, and not being able to play it without thinking so much. So that was, that was tough, but... Is that know. why you did the, the synthesized voice then? Because I saw you said it's sort of also to send up the way bands interact with audiences and yeah um and you know and it, it was it was to sort of it was to suggest that most bands just have a pre-recorded script that they stick to and to to be fair as soon as i got a mic you know as much as you don't want to you do end up saying similar things in similar places and um 
it is a bit, you know, you end up sticking to a, yeah. a sort of script of your own choosing. But, um, you know, you try and leave room for witty ad-libs. But again, it's not really my strong point. So, yeah, yeah, the reason for going with samples was it just seemed like conceptually it tied in strongly with it. It was kind of a nice wry, tongue-in-cheek way of of making it clear that we didn't take ourselves too seriously. Um, and it was a way of kind of avoiding the responsibility of having to be a frontman at a time when I was still trying to find my feet, I guess, at, you know, actually playing the guitar and making all this sort of stuff work. So, um, yeah, it's just gonna, it just feels like it's got to a point now where to not at least say hello is a bit much. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. I quite, like, I quite enjoyed it there. Is there something, yeah. there's something like sort of, I think there's a lot of like humour in what you do. I don't know if you necessarily think that. Obviously there's a lot, a lot of, like some of the music you make is very emotional. Mm. Like at the Roundhouse, when you did The Other Side, when you told the audience to cheer when, well you didn't, the voice did. Yeah. <laughs> um, to cheer when they get to the other, you know, they, they make communication again. Mm. And there was something really sort of weirdly emotional about that. Like it was really sort of like, it, it almost made me cry actually, like weirdly, because it was like, it felt, it almost felt like you were in that room because you were listening to the them talk about they're, they're not, they've not come back on yet. The stage was dark. There was something like really sort of joyous about everyone cheering when they made it through. It was, mm. it was a, it was a sort of like a weird moment for me. Um, well, that's that's great to hear, you know. And I think it, you know we do hear that from a few people. Um, it does seem to be that it does arouse certain emotions in certain people, certain of certain of the songs. That one in particular, I think, you know, people do seem to really buy into the whole story that we're trying to tell there. Um, and there's something obviously very affecting about about hearing people kind of achieve that what they achieved that day um you know almost in real time as it were and with, as, a, as part of a shared experience as well it's that's definitely kind of heightens the emotional mm. impact of it but yeah in terms of like humor in what we do yeah it was you know it was always there as a kind of defense mechanism and also just because you know like to think that i'm moderately amusing in some ways i guess so you know uh it was it was there in some of the early songs because the samples themselves were amusing, you know. Yeah. No drinking and driving, not even beer, not even water, you know. And um, some of the samples in the Now Generation, which you know is the song about yeah, corduroy yeah. and uh, I can't even remember them. Pleats. Oh yeah, yeah. there's the. What's, what's the one about pleats? It's, it's the, like the. We bring you fantastic news, and the news is pleats. <laughs> pleats. <laughs> Something yeah. like that. I mean, it's who writes that? It's it's ridiculous, but. Um, because you use that sample at the start of that album as well, don't you? Because yes. you like incorporate all the different. Yeah, I was trying to do a DJ Shadow it. type thing. Yeah, when yeah, he yeah. played live. You know, he's always throwing in samples from different things. So like a like a sort of overture. Uh, do you still do the um, the mobile phone video? Uh, we changed it to audio for the latest tour. So it was just it was the same music and a similar announcement. Just right. saying, you know, um, again because of tone and because of being aware of the what we're about to go into because we were starting the every valley uk tour with um just me on stage just playing the guitar part from the opening track on every valley which is every valley um and to have people kind of filing on one by one and to have these these miners lamps kind of slowly start glowing and then descending on kind of winches so it's kind of a very impactful and emotional mm. and serious start to a show 
you know, a show that does still have a lot of moments of lightness and, and you would even say sort of humour in it. But it doesn't feel right going into that off the back of this sort of like ho-ho-ho type, yeah. you know, jaunty type thing. Um, whereas previously it felt a bit more suitable. So, um, yeah, I think it's just about, it's a case of kind of judging the tone really. And it felt in a number of ways because of what the album's about, because, you know, we we didn't want to be seen or or just more simply be flippant with the subject matter. Um, you know, it's, it's a case of kind of being a bit more sensitive to that and, and not kind of, you know, larking about quite as much, I guess. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a responsibility, like, with some of the subject material? Yeah, there always is, yeah. I mean... Because you're, you're, like, very careful about... Like, in Spitfire, there's, like, no... Me- like, well, actually, in the war room, I don't remember there being... There might be one or two. There's not, not ma- much mention of, like, the Germans or... No, no, um, you know, I deliberately cut them out of the Chamberlain line at the end of If War Should Come because, mm. um, well, because my wife told me to. <laughs> um, no, she was listening to it and I played it and it originally had it in and she said, I think you should cut that out because it's kind of, it's obvious anyway and also it's irrelevant and it kind of, it's going to, it just kind of, it feels inappropriate in some ways and, and she was right and I ended up amending that and kind of changing the pitch of that sentence so it sounds like he ends on Germany. That's not how he spoke it originally. I kind of had to drag him down in pitch at the end of that that intonation. Um, so it just sounds like he, he ends on, I regret to tell you, we're now at war. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, um, yeah, you know, Spitfire, there's no... I, I asked... Owen did the video for it, Owen Rich, this guy who's, um, you know, he's a very, very talented friend of mine. He did the video for it and... I remember giving him the brief, like, please try and keep all sort of German logos like, you know, the SS logo or mm-hmm. Nazi Nazi insignia, keep it all out of it. Like, I don't want any of that in there. It's not about that. It's about, yeah, it's not, I don't want it to be jingoistic. And that was another reason for kind of undercutting the, you know, the more patriotic elements of it, I suppose, with making it a song about Spitfire that's a Krautrock song. You know, the kind of the obvious irony there is something that I think has helped protect it from becoming adopted by a certain group of people who I would be most distressed if they did adopt it. So, Hmm. yeah. Has anyone ever told you they've got emotion on the tube listening to Spitfire? Uh, No, they haven't. Well, here you go. This is the first time. Um, Here you go. Thanks. I will preface it with I had just pulled an all-nighter at work. Right. So I may tired have been and tired and emotional. Tired and emotional, right. But in, the, I, in the actual sense rather than the private eye sense, yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, but I was listening to the Live at Brixton album right. on the tube. And I was, I, whenever I listen to music, I'm quite like visually minded. So I always think of, mm. you know, just you know, images pop into my Probably everyone does. But um, I was imagining you headlining Glastonbury. Yeah. So um, when you do, give me a call because I've got a great idea. Because I was like, for some reason, the image popped in my mind of you playing at Glastonbury. It's the line where, can you see them? Can you see them? Mm. You know, and then Spitfires go over. Yeah. Go over the... uh, the main stage at Glastonbury it's, and it just it made me tear up for some reason it's not, so that's kind of weird it's, I'm afraid it's occurred to me as well that um, in terms of you know having that idea to be able to do that if you ever got to the stage where budget budget wise it would become an option 
I don't think we're ever going to get to that stage, though. We're never going to be a well, pyramid stage band. You know, it's just not going to happen. Um, but yeah. Well, when you do, I've got some great ideas. Okay. The rest of the great. show as well. <laughs> cool. I'll, uh, I'll, well, from when I was tired. When that doesn't happen, <laughs> I'll be in touch. <laughs>